0: Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Well, hello everybody and welcome to Word Processing. My name's Andrew, I'm joined with Josiah, and we're going to discuss uh, God's Word today, I think. Is that right, Josiah? That is right. That is kind of what we try and do on this podcast. Uh, We're looking at the book of Matthew and a sermon that was preached this past Sunday at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Josiah, you dubbed this sort of a post-mortem examination of the corpse of Israel's great failure, the fact that first century Israel's leadership had a choice in front of them, and they ultimately made the wrong choice uh, and rejected their messianic king. I'm wondering if you could just rehash or run us back through a little bit about what we talked about, set the stage for this past Sunday sermon.
1: Matthew chapter 12 is a pivotal moment in the gospel according to Matthew. Much of the first number of chapters have been building to this moment, and what we'll see as we transition into chapter 13 is a markedly different approach and different ministry of Jesus. He turns away from the crowds, away from Israel, and toward his disciples to prepare them for what is to come. And Chapter 12 describes why that change. Jesus has come offering the kingdom to Israel, as we've seen in the first 11 chapters of Matthew's gospel. And he's offering the kingdom to Israel as promised and giving them many, many, many proofs to validate his claims of messiahship. In fact, in the first part of Matthew chapter 12, we saw him giving a summary of these proofs, of these validations. There was his power on display, and that's probably most famous for us.
0: Yeah, it was almost like a, a courtroom scene, I think, is how you talked about it the week before, that here's all the evidence. Now, jury, make your decision.
1: Yeah, a summary of the evidence, basically, mm-hmm. right? Here's all the power. And he, just to put the cherry on top of all the power, he heals a demon-possessed man right, in front at, of time, all these right people. at that time, yeah. right? So his power, and it, was f- it wasn't it was just power, it was prophecy-fulfilling power. Sure. And then it was prophecy-fulfilling proclamation. He was saying the things that the prophet said The Messiah would say. Mm -hmm. And then there was this prophecy fulfilling passivity as well, this broken reed passage that he would not break the reed, he would not snuff the smoldering wick. And he points to this prophecy in Isaiah and says, I'm doing all of these things. In other words, here's the summary of the evidence. I am who I claim to be and I can do what I'm claiming to do. However, as we saw in this text, the leaders of Israel ended up declaring his work from Satan and not from God, right? They said, No, we think that you're doing all of these things not as god's servant but as satan's pawn they rejected him totally as Mm -hmm. we saw last week they just rejected him uh, without any equivocation it was a unanimous decision on the jury and that's where we come it's this it's the wreckage of that failure that generation altering failure of first century israel that now in the text this week we kind of started picking apart and saying okay what caused them to get there what were the consequences of that and then maybe what can we learn from it as well
0: Hmm. So I think that's going to be a great direction to then just take us in. Let's talk about those consequences. We talked about the consequences that first century Israel faced because of rejecting Jesus on Sunday, but maybe we can talk for a bit about the consequences that we may face today because of sin in our own lives or you know how that's different from forgiveness and reconciliation.
1: Yeah, we know from Scripture, but then also just from our own lives that sin has consequences. Mm-hmm. At the very high level, we know from Scripture that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6. But we also know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous one. 1 John chapter 2. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1. And so that's all good news. We know that sin does have consequences, but we do have a remedy in place that the Lord himself has provided for us. But at the same time, while there is forgiveness and reconciliation to fellowship, always available to us as sinners. There are also consequences of sin that sometimes God allows us to experience in an ongoing manner. And we have examples of this in scripture. I'm sure you can think of many as well, but immediately I think of Adam and Eve. I mean, they sinned, but then God graciously provided them clothing. He provided reconciliation, a way for them to continue to relate to him, albeit not the same way prior to sin. And yet they had hard time farming. They had pain and childbirth. There were ongoing consequences for the rest of their life mm-hmm. because of th- sin. I think of David and Bathsheba. David was this great king. He fell in a terrible way. He had a terrible bout of sin. And while he confronted with Nathan, was brought to reconciliation with God, his family was never the same. There was consequences ongoing. I think of Peter and his uh, failure and how that had ongoing consequences, even though the Lord restored him. Uh, I think of Paul and how he murdered Christians and how that never left him as long as he was on earth. Mm-hmm. So that we just know intuitively, and we know experientially that there are consequences for sin that doesn't necessarily have to say about our relation with God. That can be mended. We can sure. have reconciliation, but there are ongoing consequences. I don't know if you have anything, other ideas that come to mind, other stories in scripture.
0: Yeah, it was just, I used to describe this actually when I would teach in youth classes, the idea that God's forgiveness is is universally available for anything that we could say or do. But there's still going to be, as you say, consequences. So I always used to put it just to take it to the extreme and be dramatic as you do with young people sometimes. But talk about a crime. You know, if you kill someone, the Bible says God will forgive you, but you're still probably going to go to jail. You know, it doesn't have to be that extreme, but there's going to be things that happen. If you hurt someone or wrong someone, you will be forgiven by God when you ask. You might be forgiven by that person when you ask. But there might still be a a broken relationship for the rest of your life that like wounds take times to heal. And while our forgiveness on a kind of grander eternal scale is guaranteed and immediate when we ask for it, it's not always the reality with other people.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are definitely, as you're pointing out, relational consequences. Mm -hmm. Trust can be compromised and never regained. Even though there is forgiveness, there can still be consequences. Physical, we can sin against our bodies, and there's health consequences that we may never be free of this sure. side of eternity. There is emotional consequences. There can be guilt that we struggle to let go of, even though we know we are forgiven by God, or trauma that we have a hard time getting past. There can also be spiritual consequences and what we could call usefulness consequences, I think, uh, if we don't take the prescribed steps towards reconciliation with God. Mm -hmm. So we talked that there is reconciliation available, there is forgiveness available, there is a, a restoration of our fellowship with God available, but only if we take certain steps, right? Our salvation is not in question, but that closeness with the Lord can be compromised. Our walk with the Lord, our softness of heart, our fellowship with him can be compromised if we don't confess our sin to him and experience that cleansing power of Christ, a passage that comes immediately to mind is in John chapter 15 in the upper room. Jesus is talking with his disciples and he starts talking about himself as the true vine and the father as the vine dresser. And I just want to read parts of this and talk about how, again, this is about fellowship with the Lord. This is not about salvation, but sure. it's about fellowship and how um, when we are close to the Lord, we are useful and we experience that, that pleasantness, but we can move farther from the Lord. Then we become increasingly useless. Jesus says every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away that is the vine dresser the father he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit so we can be fruitful as we draw near to the sun you are already clean he's speaking to his disciples okay you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you in other words they're already saved they're already with him. But then he commands them, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. So you can see this idea of there is consequences of our usefulness if we don't draw back to the Father. So again, we want to recognize that we are sinners, come near to him in repentance and confession and And trust and faith that he cleanses us and draws us into himself, that we can abide in him, walk with him, be fruitful for his glory.
0: I think of it maybe like when you want to make that distinction between, you know, salvation and fellowship, I think of the idea of blood relatives and how there's nothing that you can do to make yourself unrelated from someone you are biologically related to, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have a relationship with them or can't maybe even harm that relationship to the point that it doesn't exist anymore. You don't have that connection with them but you're still, no matter what, connected through your bloodline.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that this is not, I know, that this is not a foreign concept that Jesus is talking about here. Sure. We know this. We understand Again, experientially, well. intuitively, we know that we can have some relationships that the the reality of the relationship c- cannot really be altered, but the enjoyment of that relationship certainly can be depending on our mm. actions, and that's what we have with the Lord as well. Mm-hmm. So
0: you spent the bulk of Sunday talking about not just the consequences, but the causes that led up to first century Israel's rejection of Jesus. And I thought maybe we'd spend the rest of our time kind of talking through each of these four causes and not just how it applied to them, but how this can be an issue for us nowadays. First of all, we saw that Israel leaders had developed what you called insatiable minds. How does that show up in our world today and even in the church?
1: Yeah, I think we've all experienced people who come up asking us, loaded questions that we just sense they probably don't actually want to know the answer to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an, it's an accusation with a question mark, really. And I think that's what Israel was doing. They were asking questions. In the case of Matthew chapter 12, they're saying, we want to see a sign. Will you show us a sign? Question mark. But really, they don't need another sign. They don't want another sign. Even if you did show them another sign, they're not going to be convinced by it. I mean,
0: if, if they're not convinced up to this point, how could they be by one more?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And taking it to our modern day, I don't think much has changed, to be honest. Our world sometimes confuses, as I said on Sunday, question asking with intellect. Our world sure. sometimes confuses you know, curiosity with intelligence. And those things can be related, for sure. You know, smart people do ask good questions. That's certainly the case. But it can also just be prideful unwillingness to concede to truth that may convict us or impose upon our hedonism and self-righteousness. When we're confronted with truth that we don't like, it pushes a little bit too much against us. It impedes a little bit on what I want to do. I can ask these arrogant, blind questions. They're really rhetorical is what they are. I don't Mm -hmm. want an answer. Nothing you could say could convince me. But I'm asking a question to make it seem like I'm high-minded and inquisitive, but I'm actually not. I don't think any of us are beyond or immune from this problem right i think they all get stuck in it for sure for sure as christians we want to be cautious to avoid that same error that same insatiable mind we want to ask questions of god but ask them with the humility of a creature addressing the creator Uh, there should be a built-in humility there not in a way that puts god on trial and demands you know what do you have to say for yourself god and that's sometimes how we can ask questions like we can say you know how can evil exist if you're so good god Mm -hmm. we're asking we don't really want an answer we just want to let the lord know if we believe in him at all that we recognize there's an inconsistency here sure especially
0: when it comes to things like suffering and pain Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. well where were you god
1: and again those same questions can be asked in a very humble way Mm -hmm. god how can evil exist if you're so good? I'm not doubting that evil exists, obviously. Mm. I'm not doubting that you're good, but how do I bring those two things together?
0: I'm, I actually want to learn how to reconcile those things. I want to learn how to process.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's other questions that are commonly asked, like, you know, if you're so loving God, why would you kill your own son on a cross? Sure. That's a common one today. That's, isn't that cosmic child abuse? But we can ask that question again with humility, and it's a legitimate question, or we can ask it with an arrogance that makes it this insatiable mind that, again, Israel was battling in the first century. And really, when we ask it the way that Israel was asking in the first century, or more specifically, Israel's leaders in the first century, uh, these are just arrogant, irreverent questions that don't actually seek answers. Answers that do, by the way, exist. There are answers to all of these questions if we seek them in humility. And again, that's what Israel was doing. They were asking with this kind of chip on their shoulder, this insatiable mind.
0: The next cause was unrepentant hearts. And I think let's just go through kind of the same questions like, where do we see this today? And how can we as Christians tell that we might be moving in that direction?
1: I mean, we see this all over the place, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> I think we see unrepentant hearts all over the place. And I feel the the pinch in my own life of a heart that wants to grow hard, and I want to keep it soft by the power of God for his mm-hmm. glory. Uh, this is a constant battle. We want to maintain a soft heart. And that begins, I think, first by recognizing that God is God and has the right and authority to determine what sin is. This is a perennial struggle, and we see it all the way through the pages of Scripture sinful people trying to redefine what's right and wrong, even though God has clearly said what's right and wrong. This is a constant battle. And when we give in to that lie that I can redefine what sin is to match my desires or to match the times I'm living in, mm-hmm. then that's a gateway to getting to an unrepentant heart because then I have nothing to repent of. I've moved the goalposts of what's right and wrong and I have nothing to apologize for. Nothing can tell me that I'm wrong. I've already decided it's right. And My goodness, we see this all over the place, and not just outside the church. We see this in the church, we see this in our homes. Again, I feel the pinch of this. It is tough work to look into the mirror of the word and see that, wow, more evidence, I don't meet the standard of perfection. Now again, we don't leave it there. God has graciously provided a sacrifice for that, and I have fellowship, as we've already talked about, with the Father through the blood of Christ, and a joyful fellowship. But at the same time, we need to know who we are in Christ. And that's where a repentant heart comes from, is understanding who we are and who God is and what he's provided for us. Basically, repentance is agreeing with God what he said is wrong and what he said is right, what he said is good and what he said is evil. I agree with you, Lord. I realize that I have done wrong in your eyes. I'm agreeing with you. And with your help, I want to turn from that and rest in your forgiveness. And a great model of that, again, going back to David after his great sin in Psalm 51, we see this great expression of this repentant heart. This is why he was a man after God's own heart in spite of his very relatable humanity, right? He was still a man after God's own heart because when confronted with sin, he was very repentant and humble. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, in Psalm 51, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Right there, you see, he's agreeing with with God that he has transgressions. Yeah. Yeah, I have sinned. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's agreeing that only God can cleanse him. Only God can provide the purity he now needs. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And verse four, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you are judged like agreeing with God he's the blameless judge I've sinned in your eyes in your eyes alone now we would say well he's kind of sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba as well but ultimately he says at the highest level yes he's sinned against those people I don't think David pressed when we meet him in glory he'll understand that he will say that yeah. readily but he's saying at the highest level he sinned against God all this is against him and he's agreeing with God about that
0: because sin is sin and when you sin against anyone you're yourself included you are sinning against god yeah yeah let's talk about the third cause which was apathetic ears where do we see that today
1: yeah this is coming from the same root as the other ones this pridefulness it's a prideful thing to think that i've got it figured out and no one can tell me any different yeah there's a certain amount of blind swagger that comes along with that that i've got life figured out and my ears are deaf to any sort of input you know, Today, with ease of access to information, unprecedented levels, we could say, it can be tempting to think we've got it all figured out, that we've got a corner on the information we need. But it was around in the first century as well. I mean, Paul writing to young Timothy, he warns Timothy that there's going to come a day when people won't want to hear the Word of God. But they're going to arrange for themselves teachers which will just tell them what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, They've decided what is right. They've decided what they want to hear. And they're going to find people that will tickle their ears with that very information. That's kind of what we're talking about here. It's these apathetic ears. I don't want to hear anything contrary to what I already have decided is true. And again, I want to be cautious of that in my own life. Do I have some presuppositions, some things that I've decided apart from the Lord that I'm just going to find out how to affirm those things and protect those things and no one can tell me any different? That's a dangerous place to be in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, finally, there was erroneous goals. Let's talk about this. What is What are these goals that Israel had? had what goals do we have that are maybe in the wrong direction?
1: So in Matthew chapter 12, I pointed out that they were really relying on self-righteous morality. Uh, Jesus told this parable of a demon who returned to his host to find it tidy but unoccupied. And so he moved back in with roommates. Yeah. And it was pointing to the fact that Israel had kind of at the time, they were relying on this vacant room. They hadn't asked the Lord to move in this supernatural tenant, if you will. They hadn't asked him to move in. Instead, they had kind of relied on keeping it clean on their own accord, on being moral and keeping the Mosaic law. And that's just wrong. That's a wrong view of righteousness on our own power. In addition to that, they had also saw their association with the family of God and with the kingdom of God and the coming king to be through bloodlines mainly. Their association with Abraham they were really leaning on and Jesus points to his own family uses his own family as an illustration it says no no you mis- you've misunderstood my brothers and sisters are those who do the will of the, of the father who's in heaven yeah my brothers and sisters my family my mother my father those who belong to me are those who believe in me that I am the Messiah and so they had missed the mark in several different ways and I mentioned that this is probably the foundational error yeah. in this failure that as they made that very prideful, um, although they didn't see it at the time, this very prideful, erroneous goal where they thought they could manage their own righteousness, where they thought they could, that they were safe because of who they belong to, what family line they belong to. I mean, you think about it. I understand that. They think that they're righteous and they've earned that righteousness through obedience to the Mosaic law. Yeah. I mean, how can haughtiness, how can pridefulness not be the result of that? And then how can apathetic ears not come from that? If I'm righteous already, if I come from the right family line, why would I listen to anyone, right? Why would I not have an insatiable mind? These questions, I already know everything I need to know, right? I have nothing to repent of. And so I thought that this pridefulness, this erroneous goal, how they had pursued righteousness and how they thought it was attained was kind of the foundational error of this entire failure.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense to me because how can we hope to be right with God in all these different ways if we completely misunderstand how one gets right with God? Mm -hmm. And they were missing the mark on that. How do we as Christians living in the 21st century avoid failing like these people did in this text? And what's at stake if we ignore God's warnings from Matthew 12?
1: Ultimately, it comes down to that humility. The opposite of pride is biblical humility. In 1 Peter 5, Peter writes, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So I think it comes down to thinking rightly about ourselves, thinking rightly about God, thinking rightly about our sinful state without Christ, thinking rightly about what Christ has done for us, thinking rightly about who we are in Christ, all of which brings humility. It's all about looking rightly at our salvation. And so I think, you know, practically how do we cultivate and protect that level of humi- humility so as to not go down the same route that first century Israel did? How do we not become subject to those causes that they experienced? even though I feel the pinch of them all the time? How do I not experience the consequences that they experienced, or, or like consequences, I suppose? And it's just really cultivating that humility. I think we need to stare at the gospel first. Mm-hmm. Preach the gospel to ourselves. We say it all the time. and It's become almost rote at this point. We got to look at the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear. We were dead apart from Christ. And just understand who we are apart from Christ. That's a humiliating reality, right? It's pride killing. That yeah. apart from Christ, we are hopeless. Nothing. My goodness, nothing. I bring nothing to the table except the sin that made my salvation necessary. And then as Ephesians 2, that section famously ends, we're saved by grace through faith apart from works. Why? So that no one can boast. I mean, it's baked right into the cake, this pride-killing reality of our salvation. And So we got to stare at the gospel. if We want to cultivate that humility. We got to stare at the gospel. We got to stare at our Savior as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, author and finisher of our faith. We look at him. Well, I didn't finish the faith. I'm not the author of the faith. Yeah, He is. I look at him. I look at my salvation. I look at my Savior. There's humiliation right in there. And I think that that's just a good place to start. We need to remember the gospel, remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then when we remember that, when we soak ourselves in the reality of who I am apart from Christ and the glorious riches I have in Christ— I mean, I'm willing to hear anything he has to say. Yeah, I want to hear from him. I want to hear from his spirit and my conscience. I want to hear from him in his word. I want to hear from him in, in God's people. I want to hear because I'm humble without Christ. I need him. I'm willing to ask good questions in a way that's humble because I want to know more of the God who saved me and keeps me saved, the God I'm going to spend eternity with. I actually want to know. They're not these rhetorical, arrogant questions, right? I have a repentant heart because I have nothing to hide. All my sin has been paid for on the cross and fellowship's at stake, and I want fellowship with the God who saved me. You see, all of these causes, they kind of die when humility reigns. And so we just want to cultivate that by looking at our salvation, looking at the gospel, and looking at our Savior.
0: Well, and that's our prayer for all of us today, I think, is that that we would all know and understand the humility, we'd come to repentance, and that we would trust in Christ. Thank you for listening with us today. Uh, We hope you have a great week. Go and be blessed. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit
1: oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.